you want to make sure when you're drafting a bill that you are always um, discussing it with someone on the other side of the aisle in the house so that way you're not surprising anyone if you're surprised the other party basically you'll stall and you lose if you have you know if your floor window is 45 minutes and that's all you're getting if you don't get your bill out in 45 minutes your your bill has to wait for another day if you surprise the other side with your language you're going to lose your time even if it's a good idea Welcome to the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Today we are speaking with Connecticut State Representative Christine Conley for the 40th District, comprising parts of Broughton and Ledyard. We'll be talking about the Connecticut Legislature and how it functions, the integral role of bipartisan cooperation in the structured legislature, and the peculiar way that elected representatives can find themselves serving as customer service for state agencies. Let's learn from Christine Conley. So I'm here today with Christine Conley. She is the state rep for Connecticut District 40 and also an attorney at Embry, Newsner, Arscott, and Schaffner. How are you doing today, Christine? I'm good. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great. Um, so for the folks who are, are not um, up on all their political geography, what does District 40 uh, contain? District 40 is about half of Groton and um, a, about 20% of Ledger, the Gales Ferry side of town. Okay. So uh, forgotten folks, if you vote at the city municipal building, at Mary Morrison School, or at the um, school administration building on Flanders Road, you live in the 40th district. Uh And then on the Gales Ferry side of town from the edge of Groton up to the CVS, basically, in both sides of Route 12. All right. Uh, And and so you're also an attorney? Yes. and when, and you specialize in, I believe you said, workers' comp and uh, also a little bit in the accident world? A little bit in the accident world. Um, most of the practice, a large majority of the practice is workers' comp law, helping injured workers um, get their medical treatment and paid and return to work or into a retraining program. That sounds like very important and good work. Thank you. Uh, and so how did you get into that field? I got into that field through an internship um, in law school. So I... Uh, when I was in law school, there were kind of those work-study opportunities that we all get with your um, financial package. Mm-hmm. And one of them was um, a workers' comp attorney who um, worked through a union, or not through a union, but had a relationship with a, the Postal Workers Union so that they could have an intern at the union office that could do client intakes Okay. Uh, for injured folks and then help people under the direction of the attorney with some of the, um, I'd say the easy forms or the, the general forms that a student could help with. And then when things got a little complicated, you could say like, nope, this is, you know, above what I trained with or what I don't know. And, you know, here's the phone number that you should call. Um, so in Massachusetts, I did that for about I think two years while I was in law school, I worked for um, technically for the union office through that work study program. And it paid at that time $15 an hour, which was a really great um, amount of money. So I was pleased to to get that opportunity. And then as I started working with injured workers, um, when I got out of law school and got my bar license, 
I had um, that knowledge or that special skill. And I actually worked for um, insurance for employer side of things for a few years down in New London and mm-hmm. then realized that my heart was not in the um, employer side of it. It was in the employee side of it. So switched over um, and okay. representing injured workers uh, exclusively for about 14 years now. Oh, wow. That sounds like some good, good rewarding work when, when it goes well. Yes. Um, and then, of course, you, you, you're in your second or third term? I am in, um, technically, we just finished our second term when session closed in May. Okay. Um, we'll be going in for a special session over the summer. Um, and then hopefully re-election goes well. And third term would then start in January of 2021. Okay. Uh, and, and what made you decide to, to run for office in the first place? I have always been political. Um, mm-hmm. I was involved in volunteering for politics, I'd say, since since I was very young. I've always had the bug. Um, and then when I, I volunteered on um, governor campaigns and, and worked on presidential campaigns, volunt- I never got paid, I guess, although I had titles, volunteered um, for Barack Obama a lot. Um, volunteered for local state state reps and senators, um, both when I was in school in Massachusetts and then when I was living in Connecticut. And an opportunity came. I'd say I started thinking about it um, when Andy Maynard got sick and folks were talking about who is going to run or or help. Um, and the Senate schedule doesn't does not work with um, a legal schedule whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got int- more interested that the state rep job is one that I could. Um, work the time management and be able to do um, both legal work and that job. So does the state as state rep is, is less time intensive than state Senate? It is. Um, and state rep, we are on three committees. State senators are usually on five or six committees. So the amount of uh, meetings is, is less and um, the amount of people you serve is much less. So state rep, we serve about 40 thousand um or between 20,000 and 40,000 residents mm-hmm. and state senators serve 100,000 residents. Okay, so it's a lot more intensive to Yeah, to so it's it's more towns district. which is more town, you know, committees or more more uh, town managers, mayors, more more of everything basically in the Senate because of how it's orchestrated. That makes sense. Um now and, and one thing we were talking about before uh we we started recording here was that uh, a, a quirk of the Connecticut system is that with the Department of Labor, the unemployment system, you guys are sort of pushed into the role of customer service. Yes, it's something um, that when both Joe Delacruz and I were elected in 2016, we figured out pretty quickly. Um, I luckily had not had much of a need for the unemployment office. Uh, but we found that when constituents would call, that they were having trouble with their unemployment claims. Before COVID, it was very difficult to get an answer or to get through. Mm-hmm. So our assistants and ourselves became, uh, I guess, the customer service department, and no better word, uh, helping people through their claims. And it was before COVID, the more complex claims had difficulties. So folks who might have worked in multiple states, Connecticut and Rhode Island, and they had issues where wages weren't being transferred quickly, or if an employer didn't report in their wages, or if someone mistyped um, you know, a name and a social security number, it's amazing how many mistypes there are. So everyone check your pay stubs and see if you're being paid under the correct name and social security number. Um, um, that wages weren't in the system and 
it took us and our staff to get a body in the Department of Labor to help people with those problems. I think um, Joe and I, we also do share um, an assistant, Emily, who is amazing. She came to work for us in the beginning of February, so right before COVID. Oh, good. And once COVID happened, she and she was she's great. Um, she's been doing a lot, and she was quick to pick up on everything. Once COVID happened, we we sat down and explained to her what would be coming with the Department of Labor because she had only had one or two Department of Labor claims, and mm-hmm. she didn't quite believe us um, for the during the the conversation, but quickly realized um, what her new job was going to be, which was customer service of the Department of Labor, and she's been um, excellent. We have a, a good computer system set up on how to get information back and forth into the Department of Labor and lists of folks who have claims that are pending um, and trying to help people through this system. And and uh, no, so this isn't just you and Joe. This is other other state reps are also kind of jumping into this role. A lot of us um, right now, the state reps are spending a, a substantial part of our days with unemployment. Unfortunately, in eastern Connecticut, we have the highest unemployment rate in the state. Mm-hmm. So we, our um, staff is working extra hard. Um, staff who work for folks in the cities, um, they have high unemployment as well. So there are a few of us um, who have more of a need than others. But if any of your friends, you know, anyone you know is having issues with unemployment, reaching out to your state representative is a good thing uh, to do. And those of us who are busier kind of have more of a system, but those who are a little mm-hmm have less of a need, our, their staff is reaching out daily um, to the Department of Labor to get claims moving in the right direction. Now, this strikes me as not the way the system was designed to work, <laughs> I hope. No. Uh, the system was designed um, to handle much less volume. Okay. And uh, so right now with COVID, we've had more claims since March than they usually have in um about a year and a half. So a year, a year and a half worth of work all shrunk down into uh, three months. Okay. So they are extremely overwhelmed. And what we've found is that if anyone's claim as they're entering the information to the computer system, if their claim has a problem where the computer can't automatically approve it, they end up in, in what we are referring to as the black hole, of you need a human to log in and fix that problem. And that problem could be something simple. Someone's issue we fixed today was um, they had filed their first name, last middle initial, and last name. Seemed pretty normal. Their pay records were in first name, last name, no middle initial. Mm-hmm. So when the computer searched that application to the pay records, they didn't find a matching pay record. Okay. So that person um. was in the hole and we were able, that's an easy solution, able to fix that one, easy to reach out to the Department of Labor. And they were able to, someone searched um, by another factor, date of birth, social security number, um, address, phone number, and found the matching records and um, was able to do that in a little, just about two minutes, but we needed to get someone's attention. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it takes it takes the state rep's office to get someone's attention. They have daily, multiple phone calls every day, our offices uh, with the Department of Labor to, to move cases through. So, so this is basically an all-hands-the-wheel kind of situation that, that, that that's where, you're, where, where the elected officials are stepping up to help out. Yes. Um, Department of okay. Labor did hire back all their uh, retirees were offered to come back. Mm-hmm. We even know of um, 
a former Department of Labor worker who was outside the Department of Labor, you know, got a different job and took a leave of absence of their regular paying job to take a non-pay volunteer position to try to help with the abundance of claims oh, wow. uh, for a okay. short-term basis. So I think pe- everyone in the system kind of knew it was going to be bogged down when we realized how many people were laid off. So mm-hmm. folks are, are doing their best. Um, some some issues are more complicated than others. Some issues uh, we cannot, people need hearings and people are denied and need to go through that adjudication process. And those are taking a while. Um, but if it's a simple, simple thing or an issue, we have a lot of folks in southeastern Connecticut who do work in Rhode Island and Connecticut or have worked in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Again, the Rhode Island Department of Labor is in just as bad of shape as we are. Uh, and someone needs to get those wage records from Rhode Island transferred to Connecticut or vice versa. Um, Emily, our assistant, has been working with a state rep that represents Westerly a lot okay. on, on the same issues of, you know, this person lives in Westerly, pays taxes in Rhode Island, but happened to work in Connecticut. Can you help us get the wage records so we can get them their, their unemployment? So the moral of the story is don't work across state lines. I guess the moral of the story is uh, if you can work during a pandemic, if you can work from home, that's really a good thing for... Okay. <laughs> so don't get laid off. That, that's another... <laughs> don't get laid off. Good, good strategy there. And if yeah. you do get laid off, reach out because we found some folks have waited six, eight weeks of no payment before they reached out. And some of these claims are a little bit complicated and they do take some time. So mm-hmm. the quicker we can get on it, the the better it is. Well, also since most people, it doesn't occur to them to reach out to their elected official because even though... You know, traditionally, you think like that's what they're there for. They're there to represent and kind of be a liaison to the government. I think there's this perception of elected officials, whether they're town, state or federal, they're, they're up there. They're in the ivory tower. They're they're not accessible to the to the common people in the streets. Um, so are, are there other situations where people have reached out to you and you've been able to help them You know, beyond um Beyond unemployment stuff, where where um, residents have reached out, and, we are able to assist and it's um, well. in a lot of the social service areas. We can't make anyone's application for any service go better than anyone else's, but mm-hmm. we can help when people get bogged down in the forms. Um, yeah. So, if folks are bogged down in the the form for food assistance, um, we can help with that. If someone just doesn't know where the form is and says, you know, I've never needed food assistance. How do I do this? We can either email them the link or guide them through to get to the link. Uh, We've been helping folks. We found a big issue is folks who need some sort of social service during COVID and they don't have computer access at home. They might usually go to the library or the senior center and they might. So how to get folks um, when you see things are computer only applications, we can mail you the application and mail back you know, Mm -hmm. send you so that you can mail it into the department or get you a phone number. Um, One of the things uh, we do a lot during the regular time, but it's needing COVID as well, is uh, folks need some help um, who have disabilities through through the different disability systems, and we can assist through that. Uh, We have liaisons to each department throughout the state of Connecticut, so folks we can call on. So when folks are having issues, through anything for to the DMV to department, you know, for special needs to needing an advocate for a healthcare um, person or someone needing a social worker, there are, there are ways a lot of ways where we can assist. We can't solve, but we can put people in the right direction. And and so that, that's kind of a key part of the job to be a liaison between the your constituents and the government. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people see it as as you know you're there for the the power of legislation and to be part of the government process, but not so much that you're someone that people could reach out to and and get help from. Yeah, and we can also we have a lot of business resources too uh, with the department with our business um, areas with DECD uh, for folks who might be needing loans or needing other assistance or even some of our small businesses are reaching out saying, you know, I, I don't know what the governor, what the plan is for a restaurant. Can you get me that information? And we can mm-hmm. send that, send that form over um, or say uh, some of our businesses are saying the second you have that, you know, can you send it to us? And we had a list of restaurants who needed it in their contact information. So they didn't have to wait to see it in the, in the press. Um, we could just answer, you know, forward those over. Mm-hmm. So in some ways you function as a, the guy who knows a guy for the government. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think something people don't realize with, with both town and, and state government is that it is so accessible um, to, to the average everyday person. And when they need, when they need help, they can reach out to their town officials and their state representatives in that way. Yeah. We're not far away. Um, we might not be, we are all working. Our, our whole legislator is working from home. Mm-hmm. Like we, we can still get into the building, but. Um, those of us who, who live an hour away, we're not driving up just to use the, the faster <laughs> internet. We, we can log in from our houses and our, our other offices. Yep. Um, so, uh, now obviously COVID is kind of a disruptive time, but on an ordinary basis, um, we are talking a bit about kind of how, how the state functions and what the, the process is, you know, the old, how, a, how an idea becomes law. Um, would you like to share a little bit, um, for, for people who are not as well versed in, in the functioning of the Connecticut government of uh, things the average person should know. Sure. I, I find this to be kind of the one of the best parts of the job is writing legislation. And it might be because I'm an attorney and a, a little bit of a nerd when it comes to this stuff. Uh, but when I first got elected, I think being an attorney meant that you, you knew what the statutes were and had seen them enough. Um, and I got assigned you get assigned your special projects. And when you start they're they're less comprehensive. And luckily I'm getting, you know, better quality special projects. Uh, But how it at least works in the House is you are assigned again to, we are assigned to three committees um, on judiciary, which does um, our heavier, our more, our our bigger laws, our more complex laws, um, and all of our criminal laws. And transportation, which is anything, anything that moves, it goes through transportation, flies, rails, cars, all, all the things have to do with moving. And then planning and development, which has to do with, um, kind of it's kind of your catch-all department or committee it has to do with anything you know with water with land use and then where whoever doesn't fit nicely in any of the other boxes ends up in planning and development Um, so you we often from the chairs we will get our um there's a certain amount of basically staff we each committee has the bigger committees get more staff Mm -hmm. and then there are committee bills or bills that you have staff attorneys working on. And then there are um, every other project. So if, if you don't have enough, if there's the committee has, you know, 600 bills and staff is working on uh, uh, 400 of them and you you have, you know, 200 other bills that are important, but they don't have staff time. The people will, will find the attorneys on the committee and say, can you help or you'll get assigned? Can you help, you know, move this through? And you actually get to, you know, it, we, we do it on word. It's not. You know, it's just like everyone else's office. You start writing the bill um, and you write a draft and you send it through. Uh, generally, on all the projects that I've been on, 
I work with a Republican uh, member of the committee, um, we're the ranking member who happens to be a Republican, on and say, hey, we're going to partner up on this bill um, and let's let's start working it. Let's start drafting. I'll send you my drafts and um, and then we have to run it by our senators as well. But to start figuring out what the problem is, what statute or statutes need to be adjusted, and how do we write that correctly? I've had the pleasure of being on some bigger bills um, where we did get staff attorneys too. So it was, you know, multiple heads kind of pushing a, a bigger problem and a bigger issue together. Um, and those meetings can be fun. I worked uh, drafting the the police and firefighter PTSI bill for uh, police and firefighters and corrections officers who have public or um, have PTSD from work injuries. And that was a room of about 20 of us um, in the same room, you know, arguing over over all the, the things you would imagine, wording, commas, um, mm -hmm. you know, should this number go here or there? Did this did this comma change change the wording in the bill? Um, and and getting that consensus between uh, the attorneys, the legislators, the advocates, uh, the towns in that bill, the state in uh because the state police had to be there. So their representatives from the state were in that bill. The attorney general's office was in that negotiation, um, as well as our business leaders were in that negotiation too, to make sure that we, we drafted something that was fair for everyone. And then once you get consensus, um, you get it, you, you know, you, you send your drafts and you, you label them, you know, draft one, draft two, up to whatever, whatever number you need. Uh, once you get consensus, then you get it called on the House and the Senate floor and that's an, an, another fun negotiating process because you need time. Um, it's interesting sometimes when you look at the, the day schedule on a session day, you realize, okay, so we, were, we, we came in at, let's say, 10 a.m. You know, we're starting out fresh in the house. And you look at, okay, when's, you know, is there anything major going on in the evening where people have to leave? Is there a, a big event in someone's town? Um, a big statewide event where let's say we might have to leave by six, you know, we have a, a close, a, an amount of time or sometimes it's things like, you know, there's a funeral service and, and folks need to get out to go like the leadership. Everyone needs to go to this you know sad event. Um, so it's how many hours do we have that day? And then how many hours is each bill's discussion going to take and how many things can we do? So with, with that uh, PTSI bill, we knew in the Senate, it was going to be, um, a bit of a discussion in the House. So we had to find both in the Senate and the House three-hour blocks that we knew uh, were needed for that discussion. And so you, you had to, you know, make sure that you got your time early, that you got penciled in, um, that you were basically, you know, on the on the go list or on the board for the day. So you had the time needed for that discussion to happen on the bill. And uh, that bill, you know, passed both the House and the Senate. And then, um, to the governor's desk. And then we had to make sure that someone informed the governor of how important that bill was, was there to answer questions that the governor had um, so that the governor could sign the bill. So when, when you put these kinds of bills together, is there, it sounds like it might be two parts of it. One is agreeing in the principle of, of uh, yes, it should, this should give $10,000 to this thing. And then the other part is making sure the language actually says Kind of like sounds almost like programming computer, making sure the language actually says what the thing is that you agreed on to make it do. Yes. And sometimes you have to go in the next year and adjust if it turns out you, you thought you had it right and it didn't work out the same. Sometimes the next year you have to adjust a few words back and forth. But the goal is to get it right the first time. Okay. 
Yeah, so it's just almost like you're programming the law. Yes. Um, now, you also said something very interesting. You said that you, you partner with a uh, Republican colleague. Um, and you, of course, for those who don't know, are a Democrat. Um, so on the opposite side of the aisle. And is that is that the usual way of, of drafting bills is in the, yes. with a bipartisan team? Usually, uh, most bills, you you do ha- you do partner with someone on the other side or partner with multiple people on each side. If it's a big bill, you might, again, have that room of 20 or a room of two. You want to make sure when you're drafting a bill that you are always um, discussing it with someone on the other side of the aisle in the House. So that way you're not surprising anyone. If you're surprised the other party, uh, basically you'll stall and you'll lose. If you have, you know, if your your floor window is 45 minutes and that's all you're getting, if you don't get your bill out in 45 minutes, your your bill has to wait for another day. If you haven't, um, if you've surprised the other side with your language, you're not, you're going to lose your time, even if it's a good idea. So mm-hmm. to have someone, um, a Republican in our, my case, working with you at least if they're if they've and there are some times where I've had Republicans work with me on bills where they knew the language, they may never vote for that concept because they didn't they're not going to agree with it, but at least they know what's coming down the road. Um, hmm. About ninety five percent of our bills that we pass are completely bipartisan, and then there's that five percent where folks just have different policy thoughts on how things should happen or how money should be spent. Um, so, so when you say bipartisan bill, my thought is that's is that's the the obvious stuff like you know recognizing uh, statewide asparagus day or something. Um, but uh, are are there more more impactful bills that also go through with bipartisan approval? Yeah. So um, another bill that I wrote last year was the pre-existing condition bill, which covers um, uh, people who have pre-existing conditions. Their insurance can't um, deny them in the state of Connecticut. Every okay. member of the House and every member of the Senate did vote for that bill. Hmm. That doesn't sound very partisan at all. It was not partisan. It was, um, again, with the the Republican. I wrote that one a little bit more, but I made sure that um, I did show the drafts to the the ranking member of insurance committee. So they, they were aware of what was coming, but since that was, um, something that folks, I didn't need to show every second. Um, it wasn't a tenuous argument. It was more of this is, this is the language and this is, we explained where the holes were in the law and why this bill was important. Um, and folks did, there were several eyes on the, on the language, um, not mm-hmm. just mine, but the, I'd say what, when people might look at that, that chart of the yes votes and say, well, that was easy. You say, well, yeah, it was easy because after it happened, it was easy, but you still have to go <laughs> through the steps, um, get all yep. your language approved and get your time so you can change some laws. It's, it's like watching the ballet dancer and saying they make it look so effortless. You don't see the 20 years of practice they put in before that. Yes. Yes. If you didn't, if you didn't take your time drafting the bill, you would have nothing to vote on. So someone does have to type the language. Um, and, and with the more contentious bills that you, that still involves, people from both sides even though one side maybe would never vote for it they're still involved in the conversation yes i think um what did most people did vote for it but um our on judiciary we do the gun bills those are very contentious Mm -hmm. and um our chair steve stashroom he he does the drafting of those bills and um the ranking members are with him every step on trying to see okay you know even if if many members of the republican party may vote for this or may not vote for it, at least let's get the language in this bill correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So they're, they're still working on it, even if they may not vote for it, if it may be a different policy, or that you had bills um, last year, it was last year or two years ago, we did the bill about um, having weapons in your vehicle. Mm-hmm. 
And I say almost everyone in the House did vote for that bill that if you had your left your vehicle unattended and you had a, a loaded firearm, that should be in the glove box or in the trunk. Seems pretty reasonable. You know, yep. let's not keep a loaded weapon on the front seat in plain view. Let's let's keep it out of view. Uh, most people did vote for that bill, Democrats and Republicans, but it did take a few. Of, I did work on some of the language on that one. It did take several drafts to get the language to where it was seen as seen as correct and reasonable. Yeah. Well, and that sounds like a, a good way of doing things. Certainly better than than the way I think a lot of people think things happen because. Because often with those with those laws, the problem is is you know they no one disagrees with the idea of yeah you should shouldn't have the gun out, but maybe um, you know what if it's a an SUV that doesn't have a separate trunk? How do you consider that? Or you know those those little devil in the detail things. And so having someone from both sides in the conversation, I think, can avoid a lot of those awkward moments when you're like, oh, we forgot that situation, and the you know we just accidentally banned something really important. Yes. So that sounds like a really, really uh, positive way things work. Um, yeah, I, as I keep saying, the, the through line on on a lot of these interviews I'm doing is discovering that that the world's actually things work better than you think they do when you just follow the media. Yeah, so we do get along a lot better than people think we do, on the most part. Uh, of course, I have folks that I'm more friendly with <laughs> than others. You know, there's 151 of us in the house, so there are I, so, I some folks that. Some. That I just Something get along, along with better, better than and, others. And not as well with. Just as, like everyone's in office, if you had 151 of you in the office, you'd say there are some people I will go out to dinner with and other people that, you know, we will be polite and work nicely together when we have to. Um, and where we can see eye to eye, that's great. But we're not going to go out to dinner on a Saturday night. You just cut out there for a minute. Oh, I don't know where you lost me. That's okay, because if you finish your statement, then it's recorded on your end. So whatever it was you said is captured. I just don't know what it was. Um, so I'll just go to my, my final comments question. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time. It's been really great to talk to you and uh, get this great insight on how our government works. Um, do you have any final comments before I let you go? Yeah, if folks um, don't know where to turn, please reach out whether it's unemployment or some other state service or something for yourself or for your family member, for your business, please reach out, um, reach out through me or reach out to Joe Delacruz and we will do our best to set you in the right direction. And how would someone get in touch with you if, if they, if they don't know? So you can, um, our email is my email is christine.conley at cga.ct.gov. It's first name, dot last name. So Joe's is Joe.Delacruz. Um, it's all the same system. And then let me look up our phone number. Our phone number um, is the 860-240-8585. That is currently being sent, again, because folks aren't uh, physically in the office right now. That's currently being sent to everyone's personal phones. We've had moments where the technology isn't as good as we'd like it to be, or it's having a blip. If folks can't get through, the 800 number um, is 800-842-8267. All right. That's great to know. And, uh, and what's the website where, where uh, someone can find you there? 
So our website is housedems.ct.gov backslash Conley. So I appreciate you being on the show and thank you very much for your time. It's been great to learn all this. Thank you for your time. As you watch the news, you might believe that the Republicans and Democrats are like two enemy camps fighting over clearly delineated questions of policy that have clear right and left sides. When people say an issue is politicized, this is what it means. That the discussion is no longer about the best answer, but it is about how we will win and how we will make them lose. It becomes right and left instead of right and wrong. When I speak to local elected officials, the focus is on the good of the people they serve. Right and wrong, not right and left. Whether it's town leaders like Mark Nickerson, or state representatives like Joe Dela Cruz and Christine Conley, the focus is more on solving the problem than some party line. People may disagree on what the best way to serve the people is, but as long as the good of the people is their core motivation, good tends to result. I'm always impressed by the willingness and the desire of these local officials to directly serve their constituents. If someone calls up Mark, Joe, or Christine with a question or concern, they're there to help. There's no question of what this person can do for them. Most people who run for public office do so to serve. The money's not that great. The gratitude is not that frequent. The power is less than you might think. If you're going to put in the work to get elected and fulfill the duties of the office... You're going to do it because you believe in this funny little thing we call democracy and the principle of supporting your neighbor. The government does not always get it right. They often get it wrong, especially at the state and local levels. But I believe this is more a function of the complexity of the issues that the government must address than any kind of malicious intent or adversarial thinking. Bad policy is more often a matter of grammar than principle. Political dramas rarely show a room full of lawyers arguing about the effect of a comma or word choice, and usually show conflicts to be clear, black-and-white questions of right and wrong or deep-seated philosophy. Most laws, at all levels, need to be looked at within a few years to correct errors made when the law was first passed. At the federal level, there are teams of lawyers to work out the details and the grammar. At the state level, there are fewer lawyers, and the work falls to the more legally-minded representatives. At the municipal level, there may be a single lawyer, or even a part-time attorney who is hired for individual cases. In my work on the Groton Representative Town Meeting, we'll sometimes be working on an issue in which the devil is in the details of grammar, word choice, and seemingly picky-yune issues. But narrowing every one of these tiny details could cause the best of intentions to go tragically wrong. Writing a statute or ordinance is almost like programming a computer. And many of the good, honest, hardworking people who volunteer their time to serve on local boards, committees, and elected bodies may not have the background in programming, discrete logic, legal drafting, or in my case, decades of Dungeons & Dragons and Magic the Gathering, needed to wrap their heads around why it's important to spend 20 minutes on the choice of a single word or phrase. And often the deliberative process doesn't even allow the generative thinking that allows the committee to think through the full downstream implications of a decision. This is why a good, well-meaning group of people can create a policy that fails to benefit or even sometimes harms those it was meant to help. As President Washington says in Hamilton, winning was easy, young man. Governing's harder. Especially at the local level, it's not about bold speeches and brave political stands. It's about smart people working together, sitting around a table, drinking a lot of coffee, arguing about where a comma should go. If you have questions or comments or feedback on the show, email michael at guy who knows a guy. 
The Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast is produced and hosted by Michael Whitehouse. Our theme song is composed by Patrick Howard of Four Unicorns Design. Our music and sound effects are from Benjamin Harvey Design by way of freesound.org and bensound.org. Special thanks to Pat Helmers of Habanero Media for all the great advice he gave me on relaunching the show. Find me on the web at www.guywhoknowsaguy.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash theguywhoknowsaguy. Please share links to the show with friends you think would enjoy it. This is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows a guy, reminding you that it's not what you know, it's who you know, and how much you're willing to help them. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect jv-connect.com. That's jv-connect.com, December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.